Okay, well, turn, uh, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6, if you have a Bible, 1 Timothy chapter 6. And, uh, you know, uh, once upon a time, long, long ago, I started preaching a series on 1 Timothy. And, uh, you know, uh, life got terribly interrupted, um, and the series got terribly interrupted along the way. But in the meantime, so much has happened, and um, in, a, in a whole variety of ways, but there are parts of this passage that are really relevant in a whole new way, like irrelevant in a way that wouldn't have been just a few months ago, or at least um, kind of shine light on uh, the, the current circumstances in a way that we couldn't have appreciated uh, maybe a few months ago. Because almost all of the strife and unrest that we see in the world right now is mirrored to one degree or another in the body of Christ. Now that's not uh, a compliment to us, of course, you understand. Um, but the point is to say, um, what's true now is true at other times, or what's going on in the culture is reflected in the church because a lot of times there's stuff imported into the church. And so 1 Timothy 6 offers us some insight as we try to figure out how to navigate these issues um, that we're living through right now and how to live as light in the world uh, in a period of time where the world certainly needs some light. And so I've titled this message, Avoiding Deception and Division. Avoiding Deception and Division. And as we listen for God's word in 1 Timothy uh, 6, let's stand um, just out of reverence for God and his word and also just attentiveness to his voice. 1 Timothy 6, I'm going to read the whole chapter this morning, uh, beginning in verse 1. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, of course. Listen to the word of the Lord. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. 
to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on uncertainty, on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid their irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, we do thank you for the gift that your word is to your people. And we open it with the expectation you have something to say to us in it. And so all the needs that we bring individually and corporately and even culturally, all those needs, God, we pray that you would speak into this morning. So would you speak, O oh Lord, your word by your spirit through your servant and to your people and for your glory. Move me out of the way as always, God, and use my words as just uh, an instrument to communicate to your people. We ask in the name of Jesus, amen. Well, uh, I won't be able to speak in detail to all of this. There's a lot here as you just gathered as we're even reading it together. But Paul ends uh, kind of like he began the letter by telling Timothy to hold fast to the gospel message and to guard against the, the, the perils of false doctrine. That's one of the themes that runs through the whole letter. And, and this is not a trivial matter for us or kind of an unrelated matter to us because the things that are going on in the world right now or anytime, as I said earlier, they make their way into the church. You know, we really should be clothed, as it were, with the truth that repels false teaching and error of whatever sort. But too often it's the case that we seem to be clothed um, and a sort of belief that soaks up the error of the world and saturates us and we sort of bring it into the church with us. And, and recent events have highlighted the fact, uh, once again, that many believers embrace what amount to different gospels. We don't really think of it that way, but, um, but it, it, it is that in the sense that there are uh, non-Christian worldviews that sort of prevail in our culture that we will embrace that, we'll, we'll kind of add in some ingredients of Christian truth with it and mix it together. And then we, we kind of have something that we think of as being the gospel or the Christian faith when it's really um, kind of a different gospel at, at its root. And so knowing that, I, I want to offer three ways or really sort of highlight or draw out of the text here uh, three ways that, that Paul offers uh, that we can avoid importing deception and division into the church. And so the, the first of those is to recognize the profile 
of deceivers and their deception. To recognize the profile of deceivers and their deception. You know, uh, there, there are periodically, I guess, uh, photos posted of like the most wanted people, right? I, I, I don't know if they still do that in the post office. I think that used to be a thing or whatever. Or, or you might even have a missing person or something like that. But there's a, a photo posted um, so that you would see, and, and there might even be a description of the person, but that you would recognize the person if you see them. We want to we wanna recognize the profile of deceivers and their deception. And, and we really see that in verses four and five here. Uh, where it says that he has an unhealthy craving for controversy. Anybody that is who's, who does not hold fast or agree to the, the, the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's puffed up with conceit, understands nothing. He has an, an unhealthy craving for controversy um, he, and quarrels about words. And look at what, those, uh, what, that, what that controversy and those quarrels produce. Envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. Okay, now we don't know exactly who these people were, but, uh, but if they were alive today, we know for sure they would be on Facebook. Uh, because, I mean, th- th- that's just like the place where that stuff is uh, bred and abounds. In fact, it occurs to me that the last command in this whole passage or this chapter uh, in verse 20 Um, may be reason enough to stay off social media altogether. It says, avoid irreverent babble and contradictions. I mean, it's hard if you're on social media to avoid that altogether. You've got to scroll pretty fast to avoid some of the irreverent babble and contradictions. But we're talking about here that the profile of these deceivers and their deception, we're talking about people who who are uncomfortable being at peace. And, um, I wouldn't mention this if it were just people out of the world. I'm not mostly interested about the way unbelievers talk and act. They talk and act like unbelievers. I'm very interested and concerned when believers start talking and acting like unbelievers. And there are people in the church that have been in every church I've ever been a part of. They're uncomfortable being at peace with each other. It's like they're... They're they're always in the middle of conflict. And when the conflict settles down, they go looking for other conflict to stir up. It's like there's something pathological. They're just really uncomfortable being at peace. They crave conflict. That's almost a disturbing description, isn't it? But they have an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words. And so that's as, as stark as that seems like it ought to be, See, the reality is, like when we're reading about uh, some third party here we don't know, that seems really kind of obvious and egregious or whatever that, that we would recognize that. But when they're sitting in the church pew and they're dressed up like church folks, you know, and, and, um, and they're part of all the church activities, somehow we, we kind of lose our perspective. We, get a, we give people credit for being more godly than they really are, um, but... But there are people in the church who crave controversy and stir up envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions lots of time because they're importing ideas that just are clearly not Christian. I mean, if you don't recognize that is, that is absolutely counter to what the church is called to be, right? I mean, that, that, that the way we're supposed to live 
and, and the things that are supposed to, that the, 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 the presence of the Holy Spirit in us is supposed to produce are love and unity and um, words that build up, not tear down, uh, tr mutual trust for each other and living at peace. And like that, that's what's supposed to characterize believers. This is the very opposite of that, but, and yet this is people within the church craving controversy and stirring up all of that division. So it's important, first of all, that we recognize that profile of deceivers and deception. Number two, we need to know the proper remedy for disparities that are uh, present in the church. Again, to a certain extent, we, we would see the same disparities mirrored in the world but here we're concerned about life together as the body of Christ. But Paul points to the issue specifically of economic disparities. And I think anytime you're talking about disparities socially, that's likely to be at the top of the list because they somehow are most, I don't know, starkly, vividly manifest when it comes to economic disparities. But he doesn't really directly speak to the issue of of strife there but it's but there's a strong implication because he in 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 verses 17 through 19 there's a word to those who are rich uh, in verses 6 through 10 there's a verse uh, a word to those who wish they were rich and if you if you look at those two passages you'll, you'll see it that way but but envy is one of the things stirred up by these deceivers and so it's it's kind of predictable that economic envy would be one of the manifestations of that, as I said. Uh, jealousy, it would, be, it, it would become a source of division for them. But Paul does not propose that the solution to their envy problem is to take all of their wealth and share it with each other. You know, they did that voluntarily in the book of Acts. But we see in passages like this, that did not become something mandatory or sort of church-ordered church uh, down through you know, the years, the decades, and centuries that followed in the life of the church. Um, in other words, that wasn't the remedy. There's no suggestion um, that the rich people are bad for being rich. They're, it's not immoral for them uh, to be rich. Now, there are lots of rich people in their day, just like in ours, who were strongly disliked. And there are lots of rich people in their day who were oppressive. I mean, they had power that they used um, in ungodly, even overtly evil ways. James kind of uh, alludes to that in, um, I believe it's in James chapter 5. But there's no mention that there's something inherently uh, evil or immoral about being rich. To the contrary... It says it's God who provides them all things richly to enjoy. Uh, now, they may, they may be good stewards of that. They may be bad stewards of that. But God uh, is the giver of that. So no suggestion they're bad. No suggestion that it's not fair. Uh, that they have a lot of money while others have very little. And again, no suggestion on... Uh, Paul's part, the Timothy should require everybody to bring that for it to be shared, you know, by uh, church leaders or something like that. Rather, the remedy for their envy is this. Those who are rich should be generous with what they have. And if you look in verses seven, uh, 17 through 19, uh, you'll see that. 
verse 18 in particular. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share. That those believers who have been blessed with wealth, with prosperity, um, ought to be very generous. And you know, the truth is, in America, by comparison to most of the world, most of, of people throughout human history in most of the world, we're all pretty well off. I, and I don't want to downplay those who really live in economic hardship, even in our culture. But most of you listening to this right now, I mean, by comparison, we're, we're all pretty well off and uh, we're in the position to be generous and urged by the scriptures to be generous. So that's, the, that's part, half the remedy of envy there is those who are rich should be generous. Those who are not rich should be content with what they have. Notice in verses uh, 9 and 10, I mean, it kind of addresses that whole thing in verses 6 to 10, but in, in verses 9 and 10 specifically, it suggests you, you don't have to be rich in order to love money. I mean, you do understand that, right? Like, it, in fact, he's not talking to the rich where he, where he says that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. He's talking about those who desire to be rich. They're not rich, but wish they were. And so the remedy for that is contentment. Now, that's much easier said than done um, a lot of times, especially if you're really in grave need and, and just feel like you need more to even have basic needs met. But it's, it's hard for even those, those of us who have all of our needs met and yet see somebody else who has some, a little bit more than we do or something a little nicer than we do. It's real easy to become discontent in a snap. But envy and discontentment make a really bad combination. Envy and discontentment make a really bad combination. Uh, perhaps even more in their first century setting um, than in ours, money represented power and influence too. It wasn't just a matter of having material things, but you had control over people many times. Again, that was one of the issues James spoke to was the unjust dealings of um, of rich people to their laborers, you know. But we'd probably be best served in, in our case, in our contemporary setting, to apply this instruction or to think about this instruction to the rich, to apply to our stewardship of, of uh, whatever influence or advantage we have. In other words, we're rich in all kinds of ways and we don't think about it because it's kind of normal. Like we look around and compare ourselves to other people and it's kind of average. We, don't, we maybe don't necessarily um, think of ourselves as being rich in any variety of ways. But whether financial or otherwise, whatever influence we have, whatever advantage we have, we ought to steward it well, be generous with it, ready to share it with others and use it for the good of others. So we, we, need, to, we need to recognize the profile of uh, de deceivers and their deception. And, and we need to... Uh, sort of use the proper remedy um, against disparities, okay? Because that's one of the issues, it's, it's highlighted in our culture right now and, and just kind of it's on display all the time, um, disparities of one sort or another and how we respond to those, it's really a, a hot button issue. And I'm gonna come back around to that in just a, a moment. But, but number three would be maintain the necessary guardrails against deception and division. So we not only need to 
know what the profile looks like, but we need to maintain guardrails um, against deception and division. And we kind of see that in verses 11 through uh, 14 or 15, uh, or rather 11 through 16, I guess it is. I'm not going to read all of that, but look at what he says. Over against this um, unhealthy craving for controversy and, and envy and dissension and so forth and the, and the disparity between rich and wish they were rich kind of thing. Uh, look what he says to Timothy in verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, Okay, flee, flee these worldly concerns. Pursue the right things that are Christ-centered. Fight the good fight of faith. You know, it occurred to me as I was studying this passage or whatever, not, not every fight is a good fight. I mean, there are a lot of fighting Christians and kind of have been uh, for a long time, for as long as we've really been so actively engaged in culture wars. But there are a lot of fighting Christians, and, and some fights are worth fighting, but not all of them are good fights. Not all of them are good fights. But he says, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life. You, know, you understand the tension um, that we feel a lot of times as believers. That, you know, we, we don't want to be, as they say, so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. That, that if the gospel really is good news that gives people hope and eternal life, there ought to be some translation of that, like it ought to actually manifest in some way on this earth, that the gospel ought to be good news that people begin to see to come pass, come to pass in this life, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, but here's the, other, here's the other part of that. If you read Ecclesiastes, you know, you're, you're, you're reading from somebody in Solomon who's gained like everything you could possibly hope to gain in terms of wealth, power, peace in his kingdom, and like everything. And he, he, didn't, he didn't withhold anything from himself, he said. And yet the, the theme in that book is all is vanity <laughs> and grasping at the wind. I mean, like that no matter what you build up in this, whatever you accumulate in this life, somebody else is gonna spend it. And you don't know whether they're gonna spend it Wisely or unwisely, whatever you build up, other people are going to tear down. And so that doesn't mean then we don't accumulate and try to do good on this world. That does, you know, on this earth, it doesn't mean we don't build things up. But we just don't place too much hope in that, uh, nor set ourselves up to be depressed or or despondent when we see. It's, it's not used by others the way it wish, we wish it would be. You know, uh, very often there's the experience of, like if you've given a gift to somebody at Christmas or something like that, and um, you, you really thought a lot about this gift, and you just know how excited they're going to be, and you give it to them, and they're not all that excited. <laughs> and they're not nearly as excited as you were in buying it, and like they don't seem particularly thankful. I mean, that could be discouraging, depending on how you had your, your hopes set up. Well, what I'm suggesting is there's much, a lot that we can do in life with hopes of how that's going to change the world, of how that's going to bless other people, um, how their lives are going to be changed or how thankful they're going to be or you know, what our kids or our grandkids are going to do with the legacy we're trying to hand down to them. And, 
and we need to not place too much hope at all in those things, but rather take hold of eternal life. I mean, if you fix your attention and your affections, even on doing good in this world, you're going to be disappointed in the end. And we don't need to lose sight of that fact um, that the gospel offers hope of eternal life and not just of life on this earth. And then, and then finally, the, the, the last thing I'll say just in generalizing about that, uh, that, that one of the necessary guardrails here is just staying focused on the lordship of Jesus. He is very much the center of the gospel. And, it, and that's, what he's, that's what Paul is driving at for Timothy here in this text. I mean, keep your eyes focused on Jesus, who is, by the way, the only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. Again, there are lots of things. We can put a lot of hope in princes, as it were, or in kings, in political rulers, in political systems. And there are times where we very much have to engage with those people and with those systems in order to affect change for the good of other people. Now is, it, is one of those times uh, for us. But again, our, our hope in those uh, people in those systems or institutions and the change that they might bring about um, are going to be, uh, it's easy for them to get out of balance or out of focus. And if we don't have our own perspective that, that those all serve and operate under the lordship of the only sovereign, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ himself, um, again, we'll be disheartened and disappointed and we'll get, we'll get ourselves off track as the church, and that's really probably more to the point that what, what, that what Timothy is reminded of is keep the gospel central to the life of the church and to your ministry. Our energy and passion are not best spent on culture wars. And it's become so, that, that it's become so normal, uh, part, a normal part of the life of the evangelical church in the last 40 years um, that there are some people that don't even know how to think about the Christian faith apart from this sort of constant engagement in culture wars. And, it, and again, it's impossible to, to, to live in the world and not be engaged at, um, at some level in just cultural concerns and societal concerns. We, we ought to be. But, um, but that's not where our energy and passion um, are all best Invested, And I'd say that this finally before kind of moving on to a point of application. If the death and resurrection of, of Jesus Christ um, aren't necessary to the cause we're pursuing, then it's probably not a cause worth pursuing. If we, if we, are, if we are pouring ourselves um, into a cause, and the, both the cause itself and the way that we're pursuing it as Christians, if if the death and resurrection of Jesus are irrelevant to that, we're probably invested in the wrong place or at least misdirected because the gospel puts him and his life, death, and resurrection at the very center of the message. And if that's not part of what we're proclaiming and if that's not part of the change or the center of the change that we're offering to the world, then we're misguided. So I wanna, I, I wanna just... 
apply that all in a real particular way. Again, this sort of this abiding truth that we need to know the profile of deception and, and, and deceivers in the church, that we need to know what the proper remedies are for disparities that, that manifest in the church, and that we need to maintain the, the necessary guardrails against deception and division that can enter into the church. I want to um, apply that in a particular way here this morning. I think I shared a quote sometime back by G.K. Chesterton. Um, I think I shared this particular quote, but I, I'll probably share it again because it actually is just one of my uh, favorite quotes in life, frankly. But he said this, the reformer is always right about what is wrong. He's generally wrong about what is right. The reformer is always right about what is wrong. He's generally wrong about what is right. Now you could just take that and chew on it and meditate on it some and consider how true that seems to be. But in other words, you very often have somebody who makes an accurate analysis of what's wrong in the church, in the world, in government, society in whatever sense makes a broad scale analysis of what's wrong and they're right about it. But then the proposed solution to that, they get terribly wrong. Generally, Chesterton says, I think that would be, I think you would see that borne out in history. Well, currently there's a lot of talk about change that needs to take place um, in the country, particularly along the lines of racial issues. Of course, I addressed that myself a couple of weeks ago. I think there is uh, clearly change that needs to take place. I think there is a moment being offered that's unlike others that we've seen in uh, probably in my lifetime um, and, and, and something that, that God is going to work in the middle of. Uh, and as Christians, we ought always to be quick to speak up and act um, uh, in the interest of justice. Issues of justice and injustice, in other words, ought to move us, both in what we say and how we act. But if we just jump on the bandwagon um, of kind of what the response is uh, in the world at large or, or by the world at large, if we just jump on the bandwagon and join the chorus of voices that are already shouting, we're likely to find ourselves being right about what's wrong, uh, but very wrong about what's right. So I wanna, I wanna be specific in, in one area there. The much of the conversation um, and language and even just movement around social justice issues as they're often referred to, much of the conversation and the language around those issues and the movements themselves actually flow out of a thoroughly non-Christian worldview. And my interest in highlighting this today is to, is, is to, number one, remove any excuse that we might have for disengaging. Because this is the way it goes a lot of times, more often than not, in our, uh, in, in our Christian culture right now. We're, we're just as divided as the, as the world at large. And so we see um, the, other, the other guy, the other side of the, of the aisle, as it were, as being fundamentally wrong about some stuff. And it just ex excuses us from being engaged at all. And so one of the things I want to do is remove that excuse for us by opening our eyes uh, to some of the 
um, dangers, if it, if it were, some of the sources of deception that we want to place guardrails up against so that we don't import those into the church. Because many Christians who are engaging, and this is really the second area of interest, I, I want to, I for some, just give them, remove any excuse for not engaging in those kind of issues of justice. But the second thing is, there are many Christians who are engaging in those issues and are embracing non-Christian, even anti-Christian philosophies on a large scale. Okay, Now, I'm not going to be able to do a deep dive on, on that this morning at all, um, but I just, want to, I just want to introduce this so that we're at least aware of the relevance that this has, this passage in 1 Timothy has on what we're seeing um, right now in our current time. I said a lot of the language and conversation and so forth around social justice uh, flow out of a thoroughly non-Christian worldview, and that worldview is variously referred to as critical theory, cultural Marxism. There are different, uh, different names for it. And again, largely, I'll, I'll leave the work to you to, to sort of do some research and, and, uh, and reading on your own. There's a, a couple of sources I will try to uh, share with our congregation just by email for those who are interested. But basically, this is, as, as it sounds, there's a, a, a philosophy, a worldview that is downstream from Marxism. And uh, many of you are familiar enough with Marxism to know, you know, Karl Marx as the um, sort of father of communism. He wrote the Communist Manifesto, and and um, basically his one of the central tenets of his philosophy was that, uh, you know, you had a, a rich ruling class um, and a sort of a poor working class, right? The, so the 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 uh, proletariat and bourgeoisie, or whatever, however that's pronounced. But that was kind of the, the centerpiece of the philosophy. And so, you know, uh, that was primarily on an economic level. And so the, the working class needed to centrally um, rebel against the ruling class or whatever and form a new economic order, a new social order even. That was kind of Marxism. Well, downstream from that, uh, many, many decades later, that was taken um, and applied to other social sectors. So beyond economics, in other words, to the political domain and all kinds of different areas, such that um, it, one, of the, one of the core sort of features of, of that philosophy, cultural Marxism, critical theory, whatever, is to divide society into oppressor groups and oppressed groups. And, and that would be along lines of uh, uh, sex, male and female, sexual orientation, gender identity, uh, race, religion, again, could be economic as well. But basically, you are, you are either part of um, essentially an oppressor group who's sort of the privileged majority or you're part of an oppressed group by comparison. And you, are, you could be part of different groups um, in this kind of system of philosophy. But basically, um, that's, that's one, of the, one of the features is it divides people in that way and then uh, would say that structures, systems, and institutions that perpetuate the privilege of oppressor groups need to be dismantled. Okay, again, in its, in its more radical or aggressive forms, I mean, there, there's, there's actually the desire to dismantle 
structures and systems institutionally or whatever, even if not clear about how those are to be uh, replaced or what they're to be replaced with, but, but a tearing down and a dismantling. Well, uh, there's a lot, there's a lot beneath the surface and really I'm, I'm not even anywhere close to the expert to teach on that subject, um, but, it, but it is just to, to point to something um, that's there because deception is deceptive because it's partially true. And there is something very right about what that philosophy um, identifies about injustices and even, even disparities that are embed in, embedded into systems and structures and that kind of thing. Um, there's, a lot that, there's a lot that they get right, in other words. There's enough that's true there that makes it enticing. Um, and there's something very right and biblical about standing up for justice and for caring about the weak and the marginalized. And frankly, that it's, it's something that is so obviously prevalent in the Bible and yet something that uh, we as Protestant evangelicals have omitted in a lot of ways from our theology and ministry for a long time. Um, and, and so that needs to be recovered, but it needs to be recovered on biblical grounds. And again, part of my interest here is just to say, uh, number one, to those who are engaging right now in these discussions and who are taking action, um, then God bless you in that. And, and I, I intend to myself and, and want to invite others into that. Um, but let's not be taken captive by the vain philosophies of men, as Paul says in Colossians uh, chapter 2. Let's, let's, don't be, let's don't take the whole philosophical system hook, line, and sinker because it is fundamentally, at, at, at certain places you'll find that it very much by design produces envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicions and constant friction. That is part of, that is part of the, the method to the madness. And I would say it's no surprise to me, um, I don't have any particular uh, knowledge of facts, and there may be some that are out now, but where we saw early on some of the protests that turned violent and um, turned into you know, broad-scale looting and destruction and that kind of thing. And we found that they, in some of those cases, they were, they were, they were being hijacked um, by essentially angry white anarchists, or at least that's uh, what appeared to be. In other words, unrelated to the initial protesting groups, but they're people who are there by design to, to stir up uh, dissension and unrest and that kind of thing. Now, there was been very much a mixture of that, and, and, and I don't know what's behind the curtain, so to speak, in a lot of those respects. Um, but it's, it's, it's no surprise at all that that would be going on. And um, that's one of the things our eyes need to be opened to. We do not, we cannot as Christians justify uh, support for and participation in that kind of um, destruction and lawlessness and so forth. We just can't. But we also can't justify withdrawing entirely uh, on the excuse that we don't want to be involved in somebody else's lawlessness. There is another way. The gospel um, occupies a third space in the culture, or at least it ought to. Again, the reality is part of the reason I'm even bringing all this up is 
Um, the reality is, by and large, the, chart, the church doesn't want to occupy that third space. We dive into uh, sort of one non-Christian philosophy or pseudo-Christian philosophy or another that's mostly politically or ideologically driven rather than mostly being theologically driven. And, and we, we, we buy on full scale into one competing philosophy or another where, and then fire our weapons at each other when we, we ought to, as gospel-centered people, occupy a different space. We ought to be rooted in the gospel and, and from there reach into the culture rather than those, uh, some of those gospel territories like justice or like morality or whatever the case may be being springboards to dive into uh, secular and worldly philosophies. Um, because if we, if we do that, if we do that, we are, we are likely to be very right about what's wrong and very wrong about what's right. And we'll, we'll buy a whole deceptive package and import it into the, into the church. I, I, I think there are ways in which that's been a problem for the church for the last few decades, there have been cultural and political things that have been so mixed with theology that we don't know the difference. Um, and what's, what's at risk here is just substituting it with another version of the same thing. And we don't have to do that. We can, we can go in uh, into the world. We can engage in um, social issues. We can, we can champion the cause of justice uh, with, with a gospel footing with the proper guardrails up, um, aware of, cognizant of the, uh, the profile of deceivers and their deception, um, understanding what the proper remedies are internally, even for how we deal with disparities in our own relationships with each other, and guarded against being carried away um, by those destructive ideas in some cases. Um, so I'm, I'm gonna just conclude right there and say, you know, there's a lot there that you could dive into. And what would even encourage you to, it's pretty easy to do a little bit of research um, on that. And, and like I said, I'm going to try to share some resources that would even um, give you some starting point for that. Um, but the, the easiest way that we can safely engage in the non-Christian world and, and with non-Christian, even anti-Christian ideas, the safest way we can do that is to know what they are um, so that, that rather than having to take the, the tactic of withdrawal from the culture, we can go in eyes wide open uh, and well-armed as people pursuing um, righteousness and peace and the lordship of Jesus. Well, let me pray for us. Father, um, I just pray that you would use this for good for your people as I prayed even earlier there really is so much here and so much going on and it is, uh, it is a tangled web. It feels like a lot of times when we try to step out into uh, cultural issues and, and, and that territory of just public life, but we, we acknowledge that we must do that, that we're people who are called to go and make disciples and we will find them um, occupying the world that we might at other times be inclined to withdraw from, and we will find them uh, passionately taking up causes 
that we may find some agreement with or we may find great disagreement with, but Lord, we need to have our eyes open to the truth and our feet mobilized to meet them if we are really to represent Jesus the way we're called to in this world. So Lord, would you help us to do that uh, through this word and whatever good you would do from it. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.